This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, George the Fifth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Yeah, I'm getting very close, and this is George the Fifth, take two. Yes, we're getting close, and yet we are still where we are. Two weeks ago, we had. A disaster with our George V recording, namely that after doing the entire recording, it all got wiped. Yeah. So it's the Stephen effect, we call it. And Ali's been working very hard for the last two weeks to forget everything that I told him last time. Best. But if there's any points mm. at which Ali sounds unusually knowledgeable, <laughs> it's because he's heard it before. Yeah, I've been, I've been living a rock and roll lifestyle to try and really punish those brain cells. Um, just say thanks to everybody uh, on Twitter and on Facebook who uh, gave us nice supporting messages after we announced the fact that we had lost uh, the last episode. You can follow us as well on Twitter at RexFactorPod, Facebook page, mm-hmm. RexFactorPodcast. Email us, RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com and you can leave a comment on the Podbean website or on iTunes. And you can also now, if you like, donate to the podcast. We're horrendous capitalists. Horrendous capitalists. It's still a free podcast, but um, it has to be said, after the whole Richard III being announced as being Richard III, King yeah. of the Car Park... Lots and lots of retweets and stuff like that. So many people went to the site that we actually used up our entire month's bandwidth in a few days. Yeah. So we had to upgrade our account. So we thought, as every other podcast, it seems, has a yeah, donate that's button. True. I mean, it's paid for. You don't have to, but just if you want to, it's there. Yeah. yeah. So, once again, we turn to George V. Yeah. Let's do him. He was born in 1865, the son of Edward VII and uh, Alexandra of Denmark, and he becomes king in 1910, so he's about 45 years old. And he is, in relation to Elizabeth II, her grandfather. God, that's good. That's brilliant. So, right, okay. She's met him. She has met him. His early years, of course, he wasn't meant to be king because he had an older brother known as Eddie. Eddie took after his mother, Alexandra, and rather infuriated his father, Edward VII, with his sort of lethargy and his slowness. People thought there was maybe just something missing in his head. Um, In contrast, George was much stronger, much livelier, uh, but they actually got on very well, George and Eddie, devoted to each other. And it was thought that Eddie could only really flourish if he was with George. So when George was going to get sent off to the Navy in 1877, they thought, we'd better send Eddie as well, or else they won't achieve anything. Really? So you had both sons going off to the Navy, um, joined the HMS Britannia as cadets, and um, actually went on to proper ships after that, which was quite risky for having both of your male heirs as young boys on ships. Which isn't now allowed. Charles and William never fly on the same aeroplane, mm. no wrecks, um, And probably for this reason, 1881, there was a point they were on a boat where it was adrift and rudderless for several days. Some of the crew members actually died. Yeah, now that is amazing. You told me this, obviously. <laughs> yes. before, but that, I can't <laughs> believe that. That's fantastic. Um, but other than the Navy, they had rather limited education. Edward VII had had a terrible time with um, Victoria and Albert being right. so hard on him. Yeah, so he was determined he wasn't going to do the same to his sons. He was going to be much more standoffish and let them just be boys. Yeah, good. 
As such, um, their tutor, Dalton, was very lax, and Victoria was distressed to find that when he came back from the Navy, he couldn't speak French or German. What was he doing with all that time? Exactly. Not learning French and German. Very unusual. All the previous royals, of course, have been able to speak yeah. lots of languages, and of course they are largely German. Mm, yeah. Though or, they still speak. And so we're still uh, the Hanoverians? The Hanoverians. Yeah. Well, we're not technically, because Edward VII being the son of Victoria and Albert, he takes Albert's house. Edward uh, VII of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Yes, yeah, right. At the moment. Anyway, 1891, uh, George comes back from the Navy, catches typhoid fever, uh, which, of course, had thought to have killed Albert, nearly killed his father, Edward VII. Uh, but George recovers from it, but whilst he is still recovering, his brother Eddie dies. Tragedy. Also catches a fever. Um, but it was all very inconvenient for the royal family because Eddie was just about to get married to Princess Mary of Teck. Right. So she was over, they were engaged, it was all going to happen, and then he dies. It's inconvenient, isn't it, really? Very inconvenient. I thought, well, what are we going to do with this nearly widow? But Mary was from a sort of impoverished German family. As I said, she was actually brought up in England. Um, so Bertie and Alex, in response to all these rumours that maybe they just think, well, we've got another son, why don't we just marry after him? Good idea. Bertie and Alex thought it might be a little bit insensitive to the memory of their recently departed son to just yeah. straight away marry him off. As if it's like, well, we've got a spare. Yeah, fair enough. So they were, you know, they didn't want to hurry things, but apparently Victoria was in a terrible fuss to hurry it along. Oh, I can't believe I gave her the Rex Factor. <laughs> oh. um, now, unfortunately, they were both rather shy and embarrassed at all this speculation and attention. So even though they were spending time together, you know, it was a bit awkward trying to hurry yeah. things along. <laughs> just like trying to get pandas to make. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, George is told to uh, take him into the garden and uh, look at some frogs. <laughs> Not a euphemism. Oh, come on. Uh, and so he did. Yeah. Took it very literally. He said, some frogs. <laughs> what did, she, did she like the frogs? She was like, mm, yes, frogs. Then they are. And uh, then he asked her to marry him. It works. And uh, what woman could say no? I've got to try this. Uh, they struggled to express their feelings even after they got married because of this shyness, but they wrote very affectionate letters to each other. So they were able to express oh, okay. by the written word rather and then than the spoken. Just nodded each other over Weedabix mm. in the morning. Yes. Yeah. Sternly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they spent the next 17 years at York Cottage, which is a sort of small cottage on the Sandringham estate. Um, they didn't have much privacy, unfortunately, always relatives coming in and out, and George V's relatives weren't particularly welcoming to Mary. They saw her as a little bit sort of stiff. And uh, Arch, because of her shyness, but it made her seem a bit aloof. Poor poor girl. Except for one exception. As you'd imagine, the one person who really did take her was Victoria. I can't imagine this. Why? She thought she was great. She thought that she was just what George needed to be a support when he would one day become king. Because she's so standoffish. She's so (laughs) Victorian (laughs) in her attitude. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, this is the kind of woman. Um, Victoria dies in 1901, so Edward VII becomes king, and as such, George V is made the Prince of Wales. And unlike every other Hanoverian father or mother and son, they have a very good relationship. Edward, again, determined to prepare his son for being king in the way that he hadn't been. So um, he gave him all full access to state documents. They had desks side by side in Buckingham Palace so they could be kind of working alongside each other. I wish I'd given him other. the rest of He's a nice bloke. Gave him lots of advice, such as not to offend the Scots by saying English when he really meant British. Yeah, that's still quite tricky. Mm, very mm. practical advice. Um, Edward was sad in 1901 that um, just after Victoria's death there was an imperial tour that had been arranged for George and Mary. Mm. This was arranged before Victoria died, but the politicians thought we should go ahead with it anyway, it would be good for the empire. 
So they went off on a royal tour. They went to Australia, New Zealand and Canada, travelled about 45,000 miles. Uh, George gave 544 addresses in public and shook approximately 24,855 hands. Wow. Crikey, that's a recipe for RSI. Um, and then when Edward VII died in 1910, George V was devastated. He said, I've lost my best friend and the best of fathers. I never had a word with him in his life. I'm heartbroken and overwhelmed with grief. Well, finally, we've got some normal family behaviour from the Hanoverians. Exactly. Yeah. Father Dunnies, you feel sad. Yes. The way yeah. it works. So, George is king, mm. but he takes over at a rather unfortunate moment. As if we recall, in 1909, we'd had Lloyd George, the Liberal Chancellor, had had that people's budget, which had been rejected by the House of yes. Lords. And it was yeah. unprecedented for the House of Lords to reject financial budgets, so we saw pretty much a year-long constitutional crisis in which after a general election, the Liberals finally were able to get their budget through, but they thought, we can't always have the Lords, who are run effectively by Tories, Conservatives, always rejecting our good bills. Mm. We need to limit the power of the Lords. Yeah. And Edward VII had died while the negotiations were still ongoing. So George comes in right at the moment of crisis. Asquith, the Liberal Prime Minister, demanded promise that he would create new peers if the Liberals won another general election in 1910, so the second election that year. It resulted in another hung parliament, but they had the support of Labour and Irish nationalists, so George V's support was made known, and finally they passed in 1911 the Parliament Act. Right. Parliament Act removed the House of Lords veto for financial bills, so you can't have the budget rejected again, and introduces a maximum two-year delay on public bills, so the Lords can reject it for a couple of years, but uh, other public bills, but after that, it just goes through anyway. Right, Okay. Which we, um, is still the case we've got. Still yeah. the case today. And it also reduces the parliamentary maximum term from seven years to five years. Still the case today. Still the case today as well. Um, but that's not the end for the crises um, in the political world. Can I just say, I'm not going to say that every time, but... Still um, the case today. Because it's, it's so close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was interesting when we were dealing with stuff a thousand years ago, mm. but not so much now. We've got the suffragettes because women don't have a vote. <laughs> not still the case today. Um, previously, this was just sort of organised process, but it turned militant under the Pankhurst family. Uh, a Marconi scandal um, involved leading liberals, including Lloyd George, who was suspected of insider trading for a government deal to the Marconi company. Oh. Here in Chelmswood. Yeah. Um, and Home Rule rears its head again. Because the Irish nationalists had given their support for the Parliament Act and for the liberals, they demanded Home Rule in response mm. to this. So Asquith introduced a Home Rule bill... Um, which was eventually going to be invoked to the Parliament Act because the Lords kept rejecting it. But in Ulster, where lots of people were Protestant, Ulster Unionists are preparing, they're getting weapons, there's a looming prospect of a civil war in Ireland. So it's all a little bit difficult in these sort of first few years of George V. And as he says himself, the 29th of December, 1913, Hmm. Please God, 1914 may be a brighter year for my country, and that anyhow peace may be maintained. Yeah, he's not going to get a job at the lottery, is he? It's not one of the uh, better predictions no. of George's Mystic reign. Meg, look out. Because, of course, we have in 1914 the start of the First World War. Background to this, it's all very, very complicated. We could do about 20 podcasts just yeah. on how the First World War starts. Basically, there are lots and lots of alliances in Europe. We've got the Triple Entente, where we've got Britain, Russia and France. The Triple Alliance with Germany, Austria, Hungary and Italy. Slavic tensions, with you know, sort of Bosnia, Serbia, bits of the Austro-Hungary Empire, um, Anglo-German naval race, and the decline of the Ottoman Empire, yeah. which is sort of Turkey. And... Yeah. But it all kicks off in June 1914 when Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austrian throne, was assassinated in Bosnia 
by a young man called Gavrilo Princip, who was a Bosnian Serb and a member of a group called Young Bosnia, which basically aimed to annex Slavic territories from Austria. And so we have a July crisis where Austria-Hungary issue an ultimatum to Serbia, which was difficult for Serbia to accept, completely took Britain by surprise, who'd kind of ignored it a little bit and were just worried about Ireland. Um, the Foreign Secretary, uh, Edward Grey, appealed to the major powers to try and negotiate a peace, but in effect we had something of a domino effect. Austria declares war on Serbia, Germany declares war on Russia when they start to mobilise, Germany enact the Schlieffen Plan because they think that France will come in to support Russia, so Germany's plan is rush through Belgium, kick France out of the war, and then we can just focus on Russia. And we like to support the little guy, so we get the ultimatum from Belgium. Belgium. We, exactly, we support the little guy. There was a rather obscure treaty that said that we protect Belgian neutrality, yeah. and thus Britain issues an ultimatum to Germany. Germany don't uh, take any notice of it. Germany invade, and Britain declare war. As the Foreign Secretary Edward Grey, with perhaps a better prediction, uh, said that the lights are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our time. So, but many people uh, didn't have quite such a gloomy... Uh, predictions they thought the war would be over and infamously people saying it would be over by christmas in reality we had a stalemate in france leading to trench warfare heavy casualties campaigns of attrition that failed to break the deadlock and just resulted in lots and lots of people being killed and there were troubles at home as well the liberal government under asquith uh, was struggling to meet the demands of the first world war the failure of churchill's gallipoli campaign and the scandal over the quality and uh, darth of supplies for munitions led to a formation of a coalition government. Right, this so, is what you need in a big crisis. Yes, yeah, the last ever fully liberal government ends. Oh, right. Conservatives and a few Labour people come in place. But that's not enough to get rid of all the problems. Asquith, as Prime Minister, is criticised for inertia. And they're losing liberal support as well. They introduced conscription in 1916. So previously they just had people volunteering to join the army. From 1916, if you're of a certain age and height and health, etc., you have to fight, mm. whether you like it or not. And also a Defence of the Realm Act, known as DORA, which introduced restrictions on public liberties, not popular with Liberals. And the disaster of the Battle of the Somme in 1916 saw a sort of final irreparable loss of support for Asquith. He had to resign. Right, OK. So instead, the new man comes in, and the new man is Lloyd George... He's a Liberal again, um, but much more dynamic and effective, uh, efficient leadership than Asquith. 1917 was a big year. The Russian Revolution was a bit of a problem for Britain because it took Russia out of the war, mm. which is a major ally. On the other hand, America joined the war. We weren't actually there on the front in 1917. In those days, it takes quite a long time to get people from America yes, to so France. It does start mobilizing people. But it meant that in the long run, Britain wasn't going to lose the war if America gets there yeah. in time hundreds of thousands of press troops exactly perfect so 1918 Germany has to do something so a spring offensive broke the deadlock and Germany advanced hundreds and hundreds of miles really getting close towards Paris nice. unfortunately for Germany not able to maintain their supply lines to get a bit undisciplined they don't really have a focus of what they're doing and then there's a counter offensive known as the hundred days in which the Allies push them all the way back back past the uh, Hindenburg line and 11th November 1918, Germany finally capitulates, the armistice is signed, and the First World War is over. Which they just, one of the, one or other of them had done it in the first place, a bit that St. Michael campaign by the Germans, <laughs> just the opposite. Through, yeah. just, just let's stop this, let's do it, play properly now. Yeah. <laughs> Save a lot of life. So, 1918, Lloyd George, hugely popular as the man who won the war, and he was promising homes fit for heroes. He wanted an immediate general election. George V wasn't too keen, because he thought, well, it's a bit unstable, the soldiers aren't back yet. 
But Lloyd George said, you know, it's the first time since 1910 that we've had an election. So it's eight yeah. years yeah. since we've had an election. So they have an election. Lloyd George stays as part of the coalition with the Conservatives. So they win a huge majority. But ominously, 376 are Conservatives and only 150 are Liberals. So Lloyd George is effectively Prime Minister of a largely Conservative That's weird, isn't it? coalition. And for the other Liberals, it doesn't go very well. The senior ones, like Gray, the Foreign Secretary, joined Asquith and went into opposition during the war. And there's a lot of resentment between the followers of Asquith and the followers of Lloyd George. Mm. So in 1918, uh, they've got separate organisations, separate Liberal parties, and uh, the Asquith ones don't do very well. They're reduced to just 33 MPs, and Asquith loses his seat. Um, however, Lloyd George isn't able to maintain his coalition. He does for four years, to be fair, but um, increasing unemployment, it rises up to two million after an initial post-war boom. Uh, struggles with housing, Geddes Acts, where uh, basically they introduced big cuts to uh, public spending. Finally, a Chinak crisis, a standoff with Turkey, so the Conservatives lose patience with him, think that probably we could just do without him. Uh, there's a meeting at the Carlton Club, and uh, in 1922, they decide to end the coalition. So Lloyd George resigns, they have an election, and the Conservatives win a majority, and Andrew Bondalore becomes Prime Minister. OK. So, Conservatives are all set, they've got their majority... They've got first PM of colonial birth, because Bonalore is actually born in Canada. Right. Okay. And he's pretty well respected. He's got command of the house, but unfortunately he is found to have fatal throat cancer. He's prime minister? He's prime minister. Hmm. But then he has to resign. Not very, Well, he's sort of known as the unknown prime minister, as he was yeah. dubbed by Asquith, because he has to resign after less than a year because of oh, his right. cancer. Okay, so in 1923 he resigns and uh, sadly dies as well, after just 209 days. And because so many senior Conservatives had stayed with Lloyd George of the Coalition, like Austin Chamberlain, there aren't really any senior people left. Mm. So instead, this sort of rather unknown who'd become Chancellor, Stanley Baldwin, is now promoted to be Prime Minister. Brilliant. So he kind of comes from nowhere to become Prime Minister. The Conservatives, even though they've got a majority, they're kind of lacking a bit of direction. Mm. So Baldwin decides to try and get it for them by changing policy from having free trade, where there are no taxes on imported goods, to protection, where there are taxes. Mm. So, 1923, they have a general election, Mm. and there's a hung parliament. Oh, there's so much backwards and forwards these days. Conservatives had more seats than any other party, but Labour and Liberals both supported free trade. Mm. So there was more of a vote for free trade than there was against protection. And so, we have a Labour government. No, this is brand new. First ever Labour government, which has really come from almost nowhere. In 1918, they won 57 seats. Yeah. This is just after the First World War, which was uh, an increase of 15, but still, that's not an awful lot. Yeah. However, 1922, they gained 85 seats, so they got up to 142. That's to be reckoned with. First time that they beat both sets of the Liberal parties. So yeah. if you had the Lloyd George and Asquith, they still got fewer seats than the Labour. Wow. And then 1923, they get another 49 seats, up to 191. Quite. So in just five years, they've gone from uh, 57 to 191 seats. Boom. And as they're the main opposition, Baldwin gets defeated. George V thinks, well, the constitutional proper thing to do is to call on the next leader, mm. which is Ramsay MacDonald of Labour. Um, Ramsay MacDonald is uh, the illegitimate son of a Scottish farm worker. Completely different background to what yeah. uh, you'd previously have. And he forms a government. It's a bit difficult to fill the post because they've never had a government before. So he actually acts as Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary. Good which is rather a lot of work. What house does he keep? Particularly given that this is just after the First World War and there's sort of major treaties pretty mm. much every six months. Um, they rely on the Liberals to stay in power, so they are only able to do, introduce moderate policies. 
but they show that they are fit to govern. They're not dangerous socialists who are going to bring down the country. And this was a fear, was it? That's how they. That was a fear. That was what people thought would happen. Yeah. Yeah. However, it all comes to an end in uh, 1924. Um, So there's an election, but four days before the general election, the Daily Mail published a uh, fake letter, known as the Zinoviev letter. Still up to their old trick. Uh, still here today. <laughs> yeah. uh, Zinoviev was uh, a leading uh, member of the uh, Bolshevik Party in, the, in Russia, the USSR. And um, the letter basically uh, incited revolution among the workers in Britain. Right. So this creates a whole big panic. But and it wasn't true. It wasn't true. Yeah. Well, he hadn't written it. Yeah. He would have approved, I don't know. <laughs> just yeah. didn't bother. Uh, so 1924, the Conservatives back in office, back with the majority. But just through scare of fear tactics. Well, the Labour's vote actually goes up, even though they lose a few seats. More importantly, the Liberals go back just 40 seats. So they're losing more and more power. Even more. So they'd had uh, 100-odd seats in 1923, 1924, down to 40. Right. Once again, Asquith loses his seat. He should give up. So, Baldwin is Prime Minister again of a majority Conservative government, and he reunites the party, so he brings back some of the people who had supported Lloyd George in the coalition, mm-hmm. including our old friend Winston Churchill. Ah, uh-huh, he's back in the mix, right. He's back in the mix, and he's back in the Conservative party, okay. having been a Liberal, having previously been a Conservative. And having been in the Boer War. And Boer War, so he's now a Conservative again, and he gets promoted to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. Big, big move. Big move, and uh, his big move is to return Britain to the gold standard. Ah, uh, yes. Which seemed like a very good idea. It's a way of sort of saying, yes, the pound, the glorious pound, the gold standard by which everything is measured. Uh, unfortunately, it leads to deflation and wide-scale unemployment. Oh, Churchill. Not quite so good. So in 1929, we have another general election, and Asquith has finally retired okay, and right. died. So he, oh, right, good. So he's not coming back. No, he's definitely not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> Only in a horror film. <laughs> Uh, so Lloyd George uh, returns as a Liberal leader and introduces a very bold campaign with his manifesto, We Can Conquer Unemployment. So it's written by the economist John Maynard Keynes. Oh, right. And the idea is that public works get people into jobs, more money going around, boost the economy. Does it work? Big campaign, Lloyd George, all of that money that he got from things like the Marconi scandal and uh, Cash for Honours. Really? All this Still sort of thing. Still going on today? Liberals didn't approve of it, but then actually it meant he was the only one that had any money. Yeah, yeah, right. it all in a big campaign. They fight in every seat for the first time in absolutely ages. Baldwin and Macdonald, who always hated Lloyd George, are really worried that the old goat, as he's known, is back. Mm. And so we have another hung parliament. Except this time is not quite as bad as 1923. The Liberals win 23% of the vote, but only 59 seats. So more people in each area vote for them, yeah. but not enough to not get enough. Right. First past the post in Britain means that it's whoever wins the most votes in each seat, and you add them up, so mm. the national vote doesn't actually... Reflect the most number reflect of votes. It. So even though it's technically a hung parliament, Labour are able to form a government without really having to worry about the Liberals too much, because right. there aren't that many of them. So Labour are back in a government. And unfortunately for Labour, it's one of these things that seems to happen, that when Labour get in at some point, there'll be a global economic crash. <laughs> Sure enough, 1929, we have the Wall Street crash. Mm, Decade of boom, increased speculation. Um, The Dow Jones index fell by about 60 points, $30 billion, just over the space of a couple of days. In 1929. 1929, in October. Triggering, ultimately, the Great Depression Mm. of the 1930s. Devastating impact on Europe. Um, US loans, crucial for the the, uh, post-war reconstruction of Europe, particularly Germany, 
who have a complete economic collapse, inflation, all sorts of mm. things. The Weimar Republic is pretty much broken by this. Um, in Britain, it's also quite worrying. Fore- foreigners are withdrawing money from London. The Bank of England feared there was going to be a run on the pound unless they could, could secure US loans. Mm. And the US loans are only going to be given if Britain is able to balance its budget. Right, so they'll only loan to good creditors. Mm. But balancing the budget means you've got to cut benefit spending and things like this. Yeah. And that's not what a Labour government is there to do. No. And this is a much more socialist Labour government than we'd perhaps be used to uh, today. So, Ramsay MacDonald and Chancellor Philip Snowden were pushing for cuts, but the Cabinet hugely divided, particularly led by a man, Arthur Henderson, who really didn't think they should do it. So they're split. 11 in favour, 8 against. But in Britain, you're meant to have collective responsibility with the Cabinet. You're meant to agree. Mm. So if you have basically 50% on either side, that's not tenable. So Ramsay MacDonald, he goes off to Buckingham Palace to see George V and resign. Right. He doesn't, though, because uh, George V and the other party leaders all have a bit of a chat, and they decide it'd be much better if he stayed in office, but as the head of a national government. As if there's a war. So there is really this much, it's this much of a crisis. Exactly. We're declaring war on the economy. Yeah. Right. So, and there's a coalition now with the current economy. Indeed. Yeah. So, um, Ramsay MacDonald forms a coalition, the national government, but the rest of the Labour Party, pretty much apart from Snowden, don't go with him. Right. And he's seen as the class traitor who stabbed Labour in the back just to stay in power. Right. They introduced a thing called the National Economy Bill, so there was a mix of cuts and taxation, which met their deficit targets, but it didn't increase confidence. Right. So there's still this fear of a run on the pound, so they're forced to suspend the gold standard. So in 1931, they have a general election. Right, OK. So this is because, or although they've balanced the budget, hmm. there's still people still aren't full of confidence. Yeah. And it's not recovering. So they think we need to show the public has voted for what we're doing, and we've got a strong government, national government in place, can sort it all out, okay. and that'll steady the ship. Yeah. And that is what they get. In 1931, the coalition, the national government, win 554 seats, um, 470 of whom are Conservatives, um, against just 52 Labour MPs. They've gone from 150-something to 52. Yeah, well, even more than that, probably more 200-odd. Only one man of that cabinet who voted against MacDonald, George Lansbury, retained his seat. They all get voted out. And also four Lloyd George Liberals, because he's largely formed his own little party, just his family. Right. Um, and indeed, later years, it becomes even more conservative. Otto- an Ottawa conference, uh, Neville Chamberlain introduced imperial preference, effectively protection. Mm. And as a result, the Liberals, led by Herbert Samuel, resign from the government. And Ramsay MacDonald, now very isolated, an almost entirely conservative government, much like Lloyd George in 1922, reviled by Labour, ridiculed by the Conservatives as he gets older and... Uh, and he finally resigns in 1935, and Baldwin, who had in effect been Prime Minister anyway, yeah. becomes Prime Minister again. Okay. Later years for George V, he's got a lot of concerns in the 1930s. He's got a very difficult relationship with his eldest son, Edward, well, the future Edward VIII. Um, George is a rather overbearing father, uh, much more fond of his second son and granddaughter, Elizabeth II, mm. of course. Um, but he doesn't get on with Edward. Edward indulges in dancing, he has affairs with, modern, uh, with married women. He wears modern clothes. Unreal. One of his better predictions, George V, is that after I am dead, the boy will ruin himself in 12 months. I pray to God my eldest son will never marry and have children, and that nothing will come between Bertie and Lilibet and the throne. That is prophetic. 
Not to give anything away. Spoiler, <laughs> yeah, spoiler next time. Uh, it calls her Lilibet because Elizabeth struggled to pronounce her own name when she was younger. So sweet. she's Lilibet. Uh, she called him Grandpa England. <laughs> I love that. That's so sweet. More concerning, perhaps, for George was the rise of fascism in Europe, particularly, of course, in Germany. Um, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis come to power, yeah. uh, taking more and more territories, looking increasingly warmongering. Um, George V warns British ambassador in Germany to be suspicious of Nazis, and he was desperate to avoid another war. Mm. Um, also particularly concerning was that Italy invades Abyssinia, now known as uh, Ethiopia. And again, George, very concerned about all of this. It's another country, seemingly, that's just military dictatorship mm. taking over the world. Very concerned about it. Um, a British and French deal to effectively let Italy have it. Hall Laval Pact, after Samuel Hoare and Laval, the British and French ministers. Right. Uh, so Samuel Hoare was forced to resign when this was made public. So when he came to resign to George V, George V quotes, uh, You know what they're all saying? No more curls to Newcastle. No more halls to Paris. <laughs> He's funny. And uh, he later complained to his successor, Anthony Eden. <laughs> Fellow didn't even laugh. <laughs> Good egg. I like this chap. <laughs> um, but he not got much longer <laughs> to enjoy him, unfortunately. In 1928, um, he suffered a very serious chest infection, George V. Um, he also had a weak heart, nearly died of a blood infection. He had to have one of his ribs removed in order to get in there and sort it all out and then when he laughed too hard at a joke a few months later he had to have a second rib taken out oh good grief do it all again Um, his health really in decline from that period on he's really suffering he's he's not going to last a long time Mm. and sure enough in 1936 in January his health takes a final absolute decline his doctor Lord Dawson issues a bulletin that the king's life is moving peacefully to its close and he finally dies at the age of 70 technically murdered what the problem was for Lord Dawson the doctor that George V was going to die but if he kept on hanging on and he died you know in the afternoon or the evening or something then the news would be broken not by the respectable morning broadsheets but by the disreputable tabloids of the evening papers so he issued him a bit of cocaine and morphine just to uh, hurry him along and uh, make a more convenient press release that's this is in the doctor's hands. The doctor just hurries him along. The doctor technically I mean, one person's hurrying along, one person's yeah. massive scandal. Yeah, so Joseph V was technically murdered. I, I think we can remove the technically. <laughs> I, don't know. I can. I suppose there's a, there's a time, but wow, that's I can't believe that's not bigger news. People often say that George V's last words were bugger bogner. I've heard this, yeah. It's because when he was recovering from his illness um, in 1929, he was uh, doing so in Bogner. Mm. He was recuperating. And at some point it was said that it became Bogner Regis, i.e. Royal Bogner. Yeah. So probably around that time, if he ever said it, he might have said, oh, bugger bogner, when somebody told him that. Oh, right. But it wasn't when he was actually on his deathbed. It's a shame. That he said that. They are great last words. His actual last words apparently were, God damn you. When a nurse gave him a sedative. That's less, <laughs> less nice. Yes. Yeah. Particularly all that nurse. Yeah. What, what was the last thing he said? He said some wonderful <laughs> things. <laughs> but anyway, that is it. 1936, the incredibly eventful reign of George V comes to a close. Right. And he dies. Okay, let's do, let's, uh, do his, uh, what do we call these factors? Battley Nurse! So, obviously the big thing for Battley Nurse and George V's reign... It's the First World War. I mean, of all the battles, this mm. is one of the biggest ones I've ever seen. Mm. Right, and more than one battle. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and we win. So there, that's the end of that then. 
not everything about the First World War is all that great. Mm. Um, not much of it at all, really. Well, indeed. It's, yeah. a pretty, uh, it's one of the most terrific wars, certainly, that Britain gets involved in. Uh, 1914 at Ypres, lots of battles at Ypres, but um, Britain suffers casualties of about 80,000, um, which pretty much wipes out the old professional army. Mm. I mean, that's a phenomenal number. And it's sort of killed and wounded, the yeah. casualties, but nevertheless, huge, huge numbers. Trench warfare was absolutely horrific conditions, I mean, extended stalemates, you have soldiers living in this, you know, these trenches, these ditches, it's often not that far away from each other, so you've got ditch... No man's land, where it's just sort of shell craters and barbed wire and grim, grim, and then the German trench. Not... Sometimes feet apart. Yes, <laughs> that's yeah. Um, occasionally, there's full-on assault, known as going over the top. But actually, most of the time, they're just in the trenches, facing snipers uh, and shell fire. Um, but it's all very horrible. Made famous by sort of war poets like Siegfried Sassoon and uh, Wilfred Owen. There was the scandal over munitions in 1915. A shortage of artillery since 1914 becomes a national scandal. So it basically means that either they don't have enough shells to use, or mm. when they do have shells, they don't work. So they're basically just firing metal canisters at the Germans. That is hopeless. No wonder. That's terrible. Which would hurt if it actually made a direct hit. Yeah. But otherwise, not a lot of mm. use. Gallipoli in 1915. Churchill had this grand plan to launch a naval attack on the Dardanelles. So effectively, they looked to take Turkey out of the war, they'd be able to open up an effective supply line to Russia. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when they suffered naval losses going into the Dardanelles Strait, they decided to give up on that and have an infantry invasion. Mm-hmm. If they'd actually pushed on through, the ships might have been able to get there. There probably wasn't actually that much more defensive lines than the Turks had. Right. So it could have worked. And no, not his finest hour. In so, fact, he tells us when his finest hour exactly was. Is. So he's, <laughs> very, he's very clear and specific <laughs> about when the finest hour was. <laughs> As such, huge casualties, particularly for Anzac troops, Australian New Zealand troops, and dysentery actually being the worst uh, killer of all, but about 44,000 dead on the Allied side Mm. as a result of this. Many more Turks, but um, ultimately the Allies are forced to evacuate. Most notoriously, perhaps in 1916, is the Battle of the Somme, where uh, Britain decided they're going to have one last big push to end the war once and for all. Yeah, I've heard that before. Intensive uh, bombardment with their newly working shells. They thought this was going to just destroy the German lines and they'd be able to literally just walk over. Walk to Berlin, not a problem. Someone should have walk that to Berlin. Before. As such, they had their back, you know, their rucksacks fully supplied. They were pretty heavy. Instructed specifically not to run, to actually to walk. It's just with, amazing. People with bets about you know kicking a football over and who could get there first. As it turned out, the Germans had not been completely bombed out mm. and were waiting with machine guns mm. so as such the uh, first day on the 1st of July Britain loses almost 60,000 troops That's killed and wounded just in a day one day oh, I just I can't imagine there's actually 19,000 that are straight out killed which is about 20% of the British forces are actually on the front lines at the time that's still a football stadium yeah in a day 1917, Passchendaele, um, again attempting to capture the keywords of Ypres and uh, Flanders. Heaviest rainfall in 30 years meant that with all the British shelling and just general rain, no man's land and the whole area is just an absolute quagmire. Mm. People actually drown when they fall into shell holes when they're that deep. Oh. They can't get out. Oh. Last big campaign of attrition mm. during the war. Overall, across the whole campaign, about 300,000 British casualties. 
Lloyd George said it was one of the greatest disasters of the war, and that was pretty much when he drew a line in the sand and said, we're not doing any more of these kinds of campaigns. Yeah, quite right. But and presumably the same number of dead on the German side. And, oh, yeah, exactly. All, all of these you can just double, yeah. at least double for everybody else, yeah. because overall about 900,000 deaths of Britain in the First World War. Wow. Just troops, and just British troops. There's over a million, including Imperial troops. About one and a half million wounded. And this is the equivalent of, about, um, of all sort of British and Imperial troops. About 17,000 dead every month, 4,000 every week, 566 every day, and about 24 per hour. There's about one casualty of some kind every minute. That's just awful. And that's worked for Britain, those are worse casualty rates than the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. It's double. And overall, over 20 million people that were killed in the First World War. So, not great mm. in many ways for battleness, but Britain does win the but, war. Uh, yeah, it is one. That's what you've got to say. Yeah. Um, early years, they go into the war without any financial panic or sort of political schism or civilian unrest. About 750,000 people volunteer by September. So that's August and September. 750,000 people sign up mm. to fight, which is pretty incredible. Mm. And the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, although they get pretty much taken out in the early years of the war, they do stop Germany's Schlieffen plan. France doesn't get overrun. Yeah. Germans are stopped. Mm. Lloyd George has a very good war. Um, he gave up being Chancellor of the Exchequer to become munition, uh, Minister of the Munitions. That quite a, would be seen as a step down. Would be seen as a step down, but he knew that the munitions and the shells were what the army needed, that's what the war needed, so you've got to go to where the war needs you. Uh, yeah, well, that's honourable. He uh, brings in sort of industrial leaders, men who know how to run factories and businesses. Previously it would have either been the army or politicians running it. He brings in outside experts. To do the job. So it's much more efficient. Now, the Somme, some people argue that you could see this in a positive light. In the sense that, although it's dr- devastating for Britain, some see it's a foundation of Germany's defeat as well. The Germany do suffer very he- heavy casualties, and you could argue that after that, you see something of a decline in German morale. Mm. It's almost like that's a point where gradually... They're being whittled down. And that wasn't the case in Britain. We didn't see the casualties. As... Not the case in Britain, because Britain didn't have a strong army at the start of the war. It was more France and Germany. So Britain is kind of gaining in experience and it's gaining manpower. Yeah, yeah. And 1918, the Hundred Days Offensive, a rapid advance beyond the Hindenburg Line, which is sort of German uh, sort of no. defensive line. And the Battle of Amiens um, saw seven miles gained just on the first day. Britain. Yeah, which doesn't sound like a lot, I suppose, but in the in the in the First World War context, yeah. when you've been fighting over feet, even then uh, the Hundred Days Offensive still sees four hundred thousand casualties mm. uh, for the British. Indeed, there are people that are killed on the eleventh of November, even though it's agreed yeah. well in advance. Why to make it so far in advance? Just can't get it. But there are lots of uh, positive developments um, for the army. The first use of tanks in battle. The Royal Air Force is established. Mm. Do you want a little fact about tanks? Yeah. Do you know why they're called tanks? Why are they called tanks? Because it was a uh, a top secret weapon, First World War, and they were hidden in the ships on the way over, marked as water tanks. Yeah. yeah. They could have been called waters. <laughs> they could have been. Thank the Lord. Thank Bring God. out the water. <laughs> um, and for the Empire, it actually reaches its zenith. 1919, after the, <clears throat> after the, uh, the uh, Treaty of Versailles, the Peace Treaty, which... Finally, ends and resolves the First World War. Britain gains Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, bits of Cameroon and Togo. So actually, the empire gained 1.8 million square miles and another 13 million people. 
So Britain now at its height exactly. in, of imperial power. George V himself also has a military role. Really? Not as king. He doesn't fight as king, because no. George II was the last yeah. one to do that. However, he, of course, was in the Navy in his early years. Yeah. So he wasn't in the Navy in the war. Not in the war, but he joined the Cadet in 1877, but then, as I said, he went on the HMS Bacante. So he did proper duty. So while Eddie was kind of just in classrooms and not really yeah. being given tough work, George was on deck, sweeping the decks, removing weevils from biscuits. Huh. Attends the Royal Naval College and won promotion to uh, lieutenant and uh, took command of the HMS Thrush and eventually achieved the position of commander in 1891. The coolest title there is. Very cool. So, you know, he has a very successful naval career, and, of course, it's because he becomes Prince of Wales, he has to give it all up. Um, But when the First World War comes along, he does his bit, George V, very much does his bit, usually um, is to be seen wearing military uniform, made seven visits to the Grand Fleet and five visits to frontline troops, including before, or rather during, the German Spring Offensive and just before the British Hundred Days Counter-Offensive in 1918. During the the Spring Offensive, so when it was all kicking off, he Mm. was there behind the lines? Not the whole time, but he goes to visit the troops to uh, give some encouragement. Um, He also does 450 inspections of troops and 300 hospital visits and conferred about 50,000 decorations, i.e. medals, to soldiers in this period. Because of his naval experience, that gave him a good sort of no-nonsense rapport with the soldiers, so he knew sort of how to yeah. speak to them. So he yeah. didn't try and deliver a Henry V speech or something like this. He just sort of talks to them in a very matter-of-fact way. Yeah. Do they understand that they appreciate. Oh, that's good. Right. And he himself suffers a war wound. Really? 1915, he uh, fell from his horse while out on a visit to the front, and uh, it fell on him. From a <coughs> shell blast near him or something? Uh, I think he just fell. Oh, right. Fell well still. Uh, but still, he fell off and he was pinned to the ground under his horse. So his pelvis broke in two places. <sighs> oh, that sounds horrible. Severe bruising and shock. So then he was carried off on a stretcher, straight into an ambulance train, then onto a hospital ship. Mm. Terrible weather. With, with other soldiers, presumably. With other soldiers. And uh, finally got to rest at Buckingham Palace. Wow. And uh, it was terrible. Four weeks before he was able to just hobble about with sticks. That must be that must be quite a morale boost, though, for the nation. To think that he'd been over there and got King, <laughs> King's injured. But it must have seemed that he was really getting stuck. He in. was actually involved, um, it, and it stays with him his whole life. He still suffers pain. So, what are so, we going to give him? I mean, it's a huge one, isn't it? The First World War, and it's a victory, and he's involved to an extent more yeah. so than we've seen for a long time, and more than we can expect from a monarch in the twentieth century. Yeah. It's just... There's so I much unpleasantness. Yeah, I can't feel like... You, if you, you almost feel like you're, um, you're approving of the, of, the, um, mm. of the terrible conditions and the terrible loss of life, but it's a big victory. Okay, I've got to go five, at least, mm-hmm. because it's a victory. There's, yeah. no, there's no loss there. I'm giving him another one for his war wound. Yeah. And another one for his just general care about what goes on with the troops. So, yeah, Commander King George V, first of all, victory. I've broken the points down and it comes out with a good score. Comes out with a seven. Seven. I'm, I think I'm going to give him a six. Mm-hmm. All the reasons that you said, really, I just think it's... There's something uncomfortable about it, isn't there? There's something uncomfortable, and it's the fact that, you know, it's that, that last great counteroffensive. It isn't lots of people running around with swords or out in the enemy. It's actually yeah. it's been four years of really horrible, attritional war. Yeah. Um, but Britain does win the war, and George V does do his bit. Actually, no, I'll give him six and a half. And King George V's battleship is 
awesome. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, you've got to look that up. It's amazing. So that's 13 and a half for battliness. Scandal! Might not expect quite so much from what we've said so far. There hasn't really been any sign of scandal. Well, apart from his death. Yeah, so I'm not sure we should give him a lot. Isn't it? It'd be a bit harsh on George V. Yeah, yeah, they call that, that rotten, <laughs> corrupt George V. <laughs> that bloody victim of murder. <laughs> Perhaps one of the more notorious aspects of George's reign was the death of his cousin, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, mm. Nicky. Mm. They look pretty much identical. They're pretty much identical cousins, right. if there's such things. Um, unfortunately, I have a Russia very harsh regime, terrible conditions for uh, people living in Russia. So in February there was a revolution in Petrograd, and Tsar Nicholas II was forced to abdicate. Mm. But then in October there's a revolution of the Bolsheviks, the communists, under leadership of Lenin and Trotsky which removes the provisional government and created a Red Army. Yeah. And this is when Russia leaves the war and is now anti-capitalism. Yeah. Civil war breaks out. So sort of 1918, 1919, etc. There's a civil war where you've got the Red Army fighting what's called the White Army. Yeah. And the White Army consists of people who supported the old regime in Russia, but also sort of bits of troops and help sent in from people like Britain and France. The White Army makes some gains and they start to get rather close to where the Tsar and his family are being held. As a result, the Tsar, the Tsarina, and their five children, all five of their children, are executed. Because the White Army is getting close to where the Red Army is holding the... Yeah. And they can't have them fall into the enemy hands. Yeah, so they're executed. Now, it's controversial because Nicholas might have hoped that he would have received exile in Britain, Mm. being a relative of the king, but this was denied. By? Well, it's usually presumed that it was denied by Lloyd George and the government. Actually, the government made an official offer of asylum to the Tsar, but it was George V who revoked it. Whoa. And said, no, you can't come. Dark. Because he was concerned. The Tsar, very unpopular in Britain, particularly amongst... Um, Why was he unpopular in Britain? Because of this sort of harsh regime in Russia. So right. liberals and socialists okay. really don't like him. So he's concerned. It's a very difficult period in the First World War. He doesn't want to inflame radical opinion at Things home. Things are in the balance, I guess, there. Wow. You could argue, of course, that actually it was doubtful whether they would have been able to have rescued the Tsar anyway. His children were ill at this point. They might not have been able to travel. It would have been very hard to have got in there and got out. But by definitely revoking the offer, that does continue. So they'd have had to have done like a lightning rescue raid yeah. anyway. Well, it's still... These are rather funny tastes, the mouth, isn't it? Mm. Rather more scandalous was a uh, story published by French journalist Edward Milius, namely that George V, um, in 1890, while serving in Malta, had married um, the daughter of a British admiral, a woman called Mary Colm Seymour. As such, when he married Mary of Tech, he became a bigamist and his children were illegitimate. Is it true? Nope. Right. Um, it was libelous. Okay. It was a rumour that had been hanging around for ages, but he um, publishes again when George becomes king. And by publishing it, of course, he leaves himself open to charges mm. of libel. Mm. So unusually, Churchill and George V decided that they would actually sue him, proves that George hadn't been in Malta at the time in question, and as such, Miley was jailed for 12 months. End of? Unfortunately, when it comes to real good old juicy scandal, George V says, I'm not interested in any wife except my own. And not, not even a whiff of a nun. Yes, not- he outright says, I don't want to have any scandal at my court. Thank you very much. That's a shame. But still, there is his death and the death of his cousin, which is rather darker. Mm. And so I'm in a state of mild shock. Yes. So <laughs> I am definitely going to give him points for that. One for each of those two. 
Two. Two. I'm ultimately not going to give him any of that, even mm. though that I uh, shocked you by mentioning yeah. it. I don't think it's really scandalous. It's just it's a little bit dark. He's not a scandalous man. So that is the score of two, George V and Scandal. Subjectivity. And there are a lot of big events again that we'll go into in a bit more detail. So I think what we're going to start is, we usually leave this to the end, but I'm going to do this at the start now. George V and his character. Yep. What's he like as a king? And then that will help inform how he deals with all the stuff that okay. comes along. Yep. Some of the limitations to his character, some of the stuff that maybe won't appeal to us quite so much. Last time we had Edward VII. Yep. Big character, looked a king, he loved high living and fast cars, driving along like Toad of Toad Hall. Yeah. All this great I can't believe I didn't give him the Rex Cosmopolitan monarch. George V, despite getting on really, really well with Edward VII, couldn't be more different. Yeah. He's never driven above 30 miles an hour. Quite right. He doesn't like it. No. Um, he loathes aeroplanes. Oh, shame. And he just likes the quiet life of a country squire. He's happy as though 17 years at York Cottage when he's just sitting around not really doing anything. George I. George I again. Um, He likes hunting a lot, lots and lots of hunting. Mm. And his main joy is stamp collecting. Right. He's a royal philatelist. Builds a collection. So his own face? (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That's the vainest hobby I've ever heard of. (laughs) Collecting pictures of yourself. Wow. And he builds up a collection of 250,000 stamps. A man needs a Polaroid camera. 325 volumes. <laughs> and he doesn't have that panache, that regal majesty of Edward VII. George V, he's about 5 foot 6, so he's not got that tall, strong mm. um, bearing. And he's very slight, so he's got an abstemious diet. 5 foot 6? Mm. I'd always imagine they were tall. Now, Queen Mary of Tech is actually the same height as Edward, but, uh, as George, but because... Partly her high heels, but also her bearing and her stiff back. She actually seems much more formidable. So when you see pictures of them, you sort of feel like she's bigger. Right. So there's a quip at the time that he was George V and she was Mary IV. <laughs> oh, witty. And he's a bit of a philistine as well, not a cultural man. Yeah. Um, he was once seen to shake his stick at a Cezanne painting. And uh, when confronted with a painting by a French Impressionist, um, were called over, <laughs> here's something to make you laugh, me. So what do you mean shake his stick? Just look at it and go... Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and he's a bit of a little Englander. Mm. Despite his naval career and his imperial tour, despite the fact that he's probably seen more of the world than any British monarch previously, Yeah. he doesn't like it. Really? As he, an emperor, he doesn't really think much of it. He likes being at home. Very rarely leaves the country whilst king. He describes abroad as awful. <laughs> I know because I've been there. Right, OK. Right, awful. Everywhere else is just awful. That's amazing. <laughs> so we think of Edward VII, who was delivering impromptu, charming speeches in French. Yeah, yeah. Charming yeah. the nation. George V. They're chalk and cheese, aren't they? Yeah. I can't believe I didn't give him the Rex Factor <laughs> now. And uh, remember also that Edward VII, the tiresomeness of the royal anthem, the national anthem being played. So yeah. Edward VII used to get it played at a much quicker That's pace. Brilliant. But they, I, I take it back. <laughs> well, he needs the Rex Factor. <laughs> George V, again, complete opposite. Um, he said, I do wish that musicians would not play it so quickly. They hurry it through as though they wanted to get it over. To me it means a great deal, and I look it upon it almost as a hymn. Mm. However, in his favour, mm-hmm. he's got a commonsensical outlook very much fits the public mood, particularly after the First World War. So this sort of anti-European, sort of little Englander, simplistic, common-sense, no-nonsense approach... 
that's actually pretty much fit for national mood. And the way that Edward VII defined the Edwardian age of indulgence, mm. that would not have been appropriate after the First World War. That's very, very true. George yeah. V, much more fitting. He likes a book with a plot, a tune that he can hum, <laughs> painting that tells a story. He just likes it nice and simple. Yeah, yeah. meat and two veg. Exactly. Extensive sporting patronage mm. uh, from George V in his period. Um, he goes to the FA Cup final at Wembley, to the, really? the Cup. Um, he wins uh, racing cups at yachting, very effective sailor. Like him. Um, capable golf and tennis player, and he also visits Lords and Twickenham. Mm. And it's notable that all of those sports are kind of the sports that effect became the blue ribbon British yeah, that's very sporting true, yeah. years now. So yeah. That might partly have been, yeah. uh, thanks to his involvement. Now, he's very reluctant to get involved in the pomp and circumstance and ceremony. He doesn't like all that stuff at all. Victoria had hated it and just refused to do it. Edward VII loved it and just did it all the time. Mm. George V doesn't like it at all, very shy, but he does it anyway because he thinks that that's his duty. He's the king, you're meant to do this stuff. Mm. So after he had his coronation in Britain, he then had what was called a Durba in uh, Delhi, in India. So he's the only British um, monarch, the only emperor of India who was actually crowned. In India. As emperor? So he went all the way over to India to be crowned. This huge ceremony of all these Indian princes, huge opulence, incredible stuff. A new crown had to be made because they decided that the uh, St. Edward's crown couldn't leave the country. And this huge grand spectacle. And he hates it. Yeah. But he thinks it's my duty as king, therefore I shall do it. Mm. Indicative of this is the fact that the crown was never really properly fitted to him. It used to give him really bad headaches. But he you know, he, he still wouldn't wear it for hours yeah. because that's what you that's do. What you do yeah. Because when he was Prince of Wales and he was being trained to be king, he read his Walter Bagot, who did this um, thing, the English Constitution. We don't have a constitution, of course, but this is a theoretical yeah. treaty saying this is the role of the politicians, this is what a constitutional monarch does. Yeah. George think, Fifth thinks, right, well, that's what a constitutional monarch needs to do, therefore this is what I shall do. He'd like that. There's a rule book. Follow these rules. Exactly. All fine. So he's white. got very dutiful, black and white, this is what my role is, mm. approach. And as such dedicates himself to doing all this stuff. So he tries to give impartial advice to his ministers, preserves the peace in the country, and represents all of his subjects where he can. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the attitude that he takes. Yeah. But those are also the limitations that he has. Mm. So let's apply them to real-life events. Okay. The National Insurance Act of 1911, introduced by Lloyd George and Churchill. Mm. Before Churchill went off and became Lord of the Admiralty and started just getting involved in blowing things up. Yeah, and getting it wrong. Health and unemployment insurance. So for health, workers who are earning under £160 a week would pay 4p a week, the employer would pay 3p, and general tax pay 2p. So all this meant that when people were sick and unable to work, they would receive 10 shillings a week for the first 13 weeks. That's great. And also free treatment for tuberculosis. Cool, so it's uh, the very inklings of uh, very very start of the NHS. Mm, of a welfare state yeah. of sort. And then unemployment, similarly, restricted to cyclical seasonal industries like shipbuilding. But again, the employer, the employee and the government all put a bid in so that if somebody has bad circumstances, they'll be supported while they get better or find a new job. That's nice. But That's major points. Another big one in this period, votes for women. Yeah. Background to all of this, there's the 1832 Reform Act. That's the first time it legally explicitly denies women the vote. Okay. It's because it says male voters rather yeah. than just person. Mm. 1867, uh, John Stuart Mill um, introduced an amendment, or attempted to introduce an amendment to the Second Great Reform Act in 1867, giving women the vote. So it's the first time when we actually see it appear really in the House of Commons yeah. as a thing. It doesn't succeed. However, 
1890s, things start to improve. Millicent Fawcett founds the National Union of Women's Suffrage Society, so they link all the groups to put more pressure on the MPs. Then the Pankhurst, so Christabel, Emmeline, uh, Pankhurst, bring a more militant approach. They have demonstrations, heckling, hunger strikes, stone-throwing, arson. Lloyd George's house was actually burnt down. Uh, And the government response got a lot of criticism. 1909, they introduced force-feeding in prison. George V isn't very keen on this. He likes, as we said, preserving the peace. He doesn't like it when there are different groups at war with each other. So his private secretary, Lord Stamford, and writes to the Home Secretary. His Majesty cannot help feeling that there is something shocking, if not almost cruel, in the operation to which these women are subjected through their refusal to take nourishment. It is pretty cruel. Pretty cruel. So instead, in 1913, Liberals introduced what's known as the Cat and Mouse Act. So it made hunger strikes legal. Right. Which means that... When they get really, really hungry and they're struggling their health in prison, they just release them from prison, and then when they get better again, they bring them back into prison. Yeah. So it's cat and mouse, you let yeah. them go, bring them in. Bring them in. Mm. And then 1913, it really gets closely linked to George V, when the Epsom Derby, the woman Emily Davison, steps out in front of his horse um, on the finish line, was knocked down and dies four days later. In front of George's horse? In front of George's horse. Yeah. And... Probably just a coincidence that it was his horse. He thought at that speed, surely she wouldn't have picked it out. Right. Uncertain whether she meant to die or not, or she wanted to pin something on the horse and just misjudged. Pin his... something on the horse? Well, no, well, like a lapel on the yeah. um, rein or something like that. Wow. In the First World War, all militant activity was stopped, so the Pankhurst decided they just had to support the war effort, actually get involved in industrial work, because so many of the men have to go onto the front lines yeah. to fight, so women have to work in the factories for the first time. Yeah. And so this role where they're directly involved, there are obviously a lot of men die in the First World War. So as a result, 1918, representation of the people at the Fourth Reform Act, uh, property qualifications are abolished for men over the age of 21, but more importantly, the vote is given to women over 30 who meet minimum property qualifications. So women get the vote for the first time. Right, great. Um, also 1918, it's made so that women are allowed to sit in Parliament as MPs. Lady Nancy Astor. She's the first woman to take her seat in Parliament in 1919 for the Conservatives. First woman actually to win a seat was Constance Markievicz uh, in 1918, but that was for Sinn Fein. And as we'll see, Sinn Fein refused to sit in Parliament and form their own one in Dublin. Sinn Fein being Irish. Irish. So Constance Markievicz, first one to win an election, Nancy Astor, first one to actually sit Mm. in Parliament. And then 1928, women are given complete electoral equality with men. No property qualifications, same age, everything. So, House of Lords reform. As we mm-hmm. said before, 1910, that standoff after the budget being rejected, Liberals want to limit the powers of the Lords, but because of the hung Parliament and because of the intransigence of the Lords, they need George V in support to make it happen. Mm. And this is George V pretty much day one in right. the job. Yeah, yeah. Very inexperienced. So... Asquith comes along to Buckingham Palace and demands that George give some an assurance that he'll create new Liberal peers if the Liberals win the election and if the Lords keep on refusing the Parliament Act. George isn't too sure about this. He was just, he doesn't really want to tamper with all these sort of constitutional things. Uh, but Asquith basically said that if he did refuse, then the Liberals would resign and campaign on a manifesto of the King and the Peers against the people. Which is inflammatory. That's a hell of a bold threat, isn't it? It's a pretty big threat. And uh, after 90 minutes of hectoring, George V relents and gives his assurance. That he'd create liberal peers? Yeah, Mm. if he had to. 
very angry at what he thought was this sort of bullying and taking advantage of him. They said, they behaved disgracefully to me, forcing my hand, dirtiest thing ever done. Dirty low-down trick. was a bit. That's impressive. So the Parliament Act, however, does narrowly pass, thanks to George V's assurance being made known. Indeed, it would have been very dangerous if he had, at this point, sided against reform, if he sided with the Lords against the Commons. And it was said, we said in time with Edward VII, one of the things against him was that that was the one crisis of his reign. It's hard to see how he would have resolved it. Would he have stepped aside in the way that George did? Mm. George wants to avoid conflict. So as he said himself, I disliked having to do this very much, but agreed that this was the only alternative to the Cabinet resigning, which at this moment would be disastrous. Yeah, yeah. If he had been completely intransigent and refused, like you imagine Victoria being told what to do, yeah. he could yeah. have put the monarchy against the Commons. Yeah. Another biggie, Ireland. Yeah, huge. Again, as a result of all this stuff in 1910, there's a hung parliament, Irish nationalists hold the balance of power, and they want home rule. Mm. So Asquith introduces a, um, a home rule bill, which basically means that Ireland will be a sort of dominion country, so it will rule, run itself but still be... Have a, queen, a king as the head of state. Have the king as head of state. Yeah. Bills are rejected in 1912 and 1913 by the Lords, but because of the Parliament Act in 1914, that means it's definitely going to get passed. Now, most of Ireland is Catholic, but in Ulster, um, there's a northern province in Ireland, it's not, most of its nine counties are actually Protestants, and Belfast is the largest city in Ireland. Mm. And they're scared about Rome rule, about Catholics in the south of Ireland running the show. Led by Edward Carson... 500,000 people signed a thing called the Ulster Covenant, which pledged to oppose Home Rule by any means. That's it's a declaration of potential civil war. Exactly, so they demand partition. And Bonner Law, who becomes the Conservative leader mm. in Britain, stated publicly that he could imagine no length of resistance to which Ulster can go in which I should not be prepared to support them. And he gives George V uh, a real shock when he demands that he invoke his royal veto to stop Home Rule. Because he said to him, now that the House of Lords hasn't got its veto, the only thing that can stop the Commons is the royal veto, which hadn't been used since Queen Anne, but it is technically still there. And George V very shocked when Bon Lord tries to tell him to do this. Indeed, Bon Lord says, I think I've given the King the worst five minutes he's had for a long time. George, again, he's very concerned about all of this. He considers the Irish his subjects just as much as anybody else. He doesn't want civil war, and he certainly doesn't want himself to be involved having to do vetoes. Yeah, that would be disastrous. Worst sort of thing. So he um, organises a Buckingham Palace conference. So yeah, it's all the party leaders, including the Nationalists and the Ulster Unionists mm. in Ireland, come to Buckingham Palace, try and thrash it out to have peaceful uh, negotiations. That's very proactive. Um, he attends the first session in person, gives private encouragement to everybody. As he said himself, my intervention at this moment may be regarded as a new departure, but the exceptional circumstances under which you are brought together justify my actions. My apprehension in contemplating such a dire calamity is intensified by my feelings of attachment to Ireland and of sympathy for her people who have always welcomed me with warm-hearted affection. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't resolve anything. And whether or not there had been civil war in 1914, we don't know because, of course... First World War coming on. Right, yeah. Lots of people in Ireland, including in the South, and Catholics sign up for Britain during the war, but a lot of people still very much opposed. And in 1916, we have the Easter Rising. So on Easter Monday, uh, Republicans in Ireland took very strong points in Ireland, uh, raise Republican flags, and declare Ireland as a republic. And this is before conscription, so... This before conscription. Irish conscription doesn't come until a bit later. Right. And it's very, very controversial. But... British troops get sent in, 
and uh, leaders are rounded up, uh, many of them executed. Those that don't escape. De Valera is one of the ones who escapes. Yeah. And uh, as a result, support for Sinn Féin dramatically increases. Yeah. So then 1918, general election, 73 Sinn Féin MPs are elected and they refuse to sit in Westminster. So they set up their own Dublin uh, Doyle Parliament mm-hmm. and again invoke Ireland as a republic. 19, uh, sort of 19 to 21, we have what's called the Anglo-Irish War, or the Irish War of Independence. Spread of violence after sort of murders and attacks on policemen, increasing uh, IRA, Irish Republican Army, uh, attacks on the Royal Irish Constabulary. British rule is collapsing in Ireland. So they try to deal with it, notoriously through what's called the Black and Tans, effectively mm. a sort of British para, a paramilitary group. Really with the backing of the state? With a sort of notional backing of the state. Mm. Creates a lot of ill feeling. George V doesn't like this either. He's alleged to have said that Lloyd George must come to some agreement with them. This thing cannot go on. I cannot have my people killed in this manner. Yeah. So, Jan Smuts, Lloyd George, um, and George V sort of author a speech which George is going to deliver to the Northern Irish Parliament in 1921. And he does, he gives this speech. I speak from a full heart when I pray that my coming to Ireland today may prove to be the first step towards the end of strife amongst her people, whatever their race or creed. The future lies in the hands of my Irish people themselves. May this historic gathering be the prelude of the day in which the Irish people, north and south, under one parliament or two, shall work together in common love for Ireland under the sure foundation of mutual justice and respect. Yeah, he's got the right idea, but he just doesn't have the power now to see it through. Well, it it makes an impact, that speech. It's very well received on both sides. So Lloyd George takes advantage of this little Mm. moment of momentum and they persuade Edmund de Valera to agree to talks. They agree to a ceasefire, a truce in the conflict, and they have negotiations for a peace. So in 1922, we have the Anglo-Irish Treaty, whereby the Irish Free State is created as a dominion, Mm. but Northern Ireland is given the option to opt out, which they do. And remain part of British Isles. Exactly. So with partition, you have the Southern Ireland, which is the Irish Free State, and Northern Ireland. Mm. Right, so they all agree to it. We've got a truce. That's the end of that then. Mr George Fitz says, I trust now that after seven centuries there may be peace in Ireland. Mm. Well, he's hoping. Well, unfortunately, de Valera strongly opposed the truce, uh, resigned after it got voted through, and we have a year-long civil war in Ireland, which saw Michael Collins assassinated. And this goes on for many years because the leaders in the civil war are still the leaders of the party until the parties until pretty much the 1970s. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? It really lasts, that enmity. But George V, he's done all he can Mm. there, really. And he's shown a lot of goodwill towards people who are technically opposed to his rule. First World War. Yeah, biggie. Of course, there are some bad stuff in the First World War. All those people being killed, horrible conditions. There's actually bombings of some people in Britain, the Germans. Oh, yeah, Zeppelins over King's Linen. Come over. And, of course, we have the Spanish flu in 1918, killed 50 million mm. people worldwide, about 250,000 in Britain. Mm. So, you know, not a lot of good in many ways, but... He couldn't have held that. Positives for what George V does in the war. Yeah. He becomes teetotal. Really? Lloyd George um, said that drunkenness was hampering the war effort because all the munitions workers are just getting drunk. They're not working effectively. So he says, you know, an example from someone that they really respect could inspire people to give up the drink. So George V thinks, well, that's my duty. I'm the king. Give something to drink. Wow. Doesn't drink for the rest of the war. Apparently he found it a great bore. (laughs) 
and was uh, felt rather duped when it turned out that no one else really followed suit. That <laughs> <laughs> was just him. <laughs> Didn't anyone tell him until after? Yeah. No one else was what? doing that, you know. <laughs> um, Mary, Queen Mary, pretty much introduces uh, royal rationing. So it's real austerity drives. The extent was one time an equerry arrived at court late for breakfast. Um, so he just asked if someone could bring him a boiled egg. And he was pretty much accused by George V of uh, endangering the war effort through his gluttony. The egg that broke the camel's back and <laughs> saved one egg. 1917, um, at the Derby Day dinner, George uh, put together a dinner of, sort of soup, fish, chicken. There was no meat or wine, no real extravagance. In contrast, the French president that year had dinners with caviar, turbot, lamb, ice cream, mm. all sorts of opulence. Yeah, such a Hanoverian, this guy. Now, you asked before about the fact how he actually isn't technically a Hanoverian. He's Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Yeah. Now, in the First World War, you're fighting against Germany, and your surname is Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Sounds a little bit German. Yeah, a bit too German, perhaps. Did the writer H.G. Wells denounced the alien and uninspiring court that George V presided over? Alien because he was German. German. So, George V's response was, I may be uninspiring, but I'll be damned if I'm an alien. <laughs> He's got these moments of weirdness. <laughs> so, as such, he changes the family name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to Windsor. They decided Windsor couldn't get a more English-sounding name than that. Yeah. That's what they are. So they get rid of their German titles, and now it's Windsor. House of Windsor, and that's what it is right. today. Yes, yes still, yes. George V founds the House of Windsor. And that inspired the only uh, recorded joke that I've come across of the Kaiser, Wilhelm II. Yeah. Where he said that he was looking forward to a performance of The Merry Wives of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Oh, he's a card in the old Wilhelm II. Yeah. Um, also 1917, George V establishes the Order of the British Empire, or OBEs. Previously, all awards and honours for people have been, you know, effectively for dukes or prime ministers, you know, it's people part of the establishment. Yeah. Instead, this is awards for everybody. Members of the public, trade union leaders, things like this. A way of including everybody and giving everybody credit for their public service. Oh, right. That's great, actually. That's brilliant. Mm. They're still with us today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and as she said, George visits lots of the troops at the front. Mary visits the wounded in hospital. And they also do tours of um, industrial um, areas and factories, areas damaged by the bombing. So we see really unprecedented level of public contact with the monarch. In fact, the flat where I used to live, those photos downstairs of him coming around having a look at the... Well, it was a munitions factory, I should say. It wasn't just a block of flowers. <laughs> coming around and shaking all their hands. Yeah. So there yeah. goes. Lloyd George, he said... It would be hard to overestimate the value of the national service rendered by the sovereign's visits to munition areas and the personal relations he established with the workers there. It was this directness of personal contact, free from pomp or any trace of arrogance or aloofness, which made the king's visit such a valuable aid of raising the workers' enthusiasm and to accept new methods and regulations. Mm. Um, there was a limit to what George V was willing to do, though. A minister told him that if there was a bomb attack on Buckingham Palace, that would have a really stimulating effect on the public. <laughs> what a thing to say to someone. Uh, to which he responded, yes, but a rather depressing effect on me. <laughs> that is a flawless mm. uh, uh, war performance. Um, we also, of course, had the first Labour government in 1924. Mm. This was a real biggie, because we said it's the first time we've ever had a Labour and indeed a socialist government in Britain. Yeah. And people are scared about this. It's only seven years since the Russian Revolution. Yeah. So, you know, it's still a very unstable period. Genuine alarm among public and the press. Unprecedented level of three-party politics. We've got the Liberals, Labour and the Conservatives all with significant presence in Parliament. Never happened before. All three of them over 100 seats. And George V was very much averse to socialism himself. However, he wants to do his constitutional duty. Yeah. He said himself, Today, 23 years ago, Grandmama died. I wonder what she would have thought. 
Oh, imagine. Given that she oh. thought Gladstone was a dangerous radical. Yeah. There really are no precedents for the present situation. I must use my own judgment as each case arises. <laughs> Where's the rule book? <laughs> but he thought, rule is, Baldwin, the Conservative leader, he was defeated in Parliament, therefore I have to call on the next biggest leader in Parliament, that's MacDonald and Labour, that is what I shall do. Yeah, quite right. You see, that he was exactly what was needed at the time mm. in a period of real change. Constitutional, yeah. fair play to everybody. Yeah. So as one of the Labour men at the time, uh, Jao Kind noted... As we stood waiting for his majesty amid the gold and crimson magnificence of the palace, I could not help marvelling at the strange turn of fortune's wheel, which had brought MacDonald the starveling clerk, Thomas the engine driver, Henderson the foundry labourer, and Kleins the mill hand to this pinnacle, beside the man whose forebears had been kings for so many splendid generations. We were making history. Yeah, really true. Real period of social upheaval. Mm. Now, it's one thing that they've been allowed in. But, of course, so many in Labour will be Republicans, they'll be opposed to the monarchy, they'll be suspicious of George. If George doesn't handle this well, you could see one of the two major parties effectively being anti-monarchy. Yeah. They could see it as a hindrance to them getting their job done. I mean, and in that list, there wasn't a single Duke of... Yes. <laughs> and the previous episodes, it's just been constantly, they've all, had, they've all yeah. been titled. Exactly. So George makes a very particular effort to observe all the constitutional niceties and to be as engaging and as open and helpful as he possibly can mm. to the Labour ministers. So as he says himself, I've been making the acquaintance of all the ministers and I must say they all seem to be very intelligent and take things very seriously. They have different ideas to ours as they are all socialists. But they ought to be given a chance and treated fairly. What a guy! So as Klein said, I had expected to find him unbending. Instead he was kindness and sympathy itself. Oh, he's cool. So, you know, for us, it doesn't seem that big a deal. I think a Labour government, we know that that's fine. Yeah, but... That, At the time, yeah. it wasn't. And he did his bit to make sure that it went as smoothly as possible. And he had a very good relationship with Ramsay MacDonald. So even when Ramsay MacDonald is being abandoned by everybody, George V, you know, visiting the hospital and... What a legend! ...told him he was his favourite. That's cool. That's very cool. Mm. Good man. He got also very involved when there was the formation of a national government. We might be a bit more critical of this, however. Mm-hmm. Contact her, he said. Labour cabinet split. MacDonald went to George to resign. George consulted with the opposition leaders, so Herbert Samuels, the Liberals, Baldwin, the Conservatives, established that they would support a coalition government under MacDonald. So he persuades MacDonald several times not to resign. So he goes to the palace to resign yeah. and comes out, I say, well, he, he told me not to. Yes. Right, he forms okay. a national government. So MacDonald okay. forms a national government, convinced him he was the only man to lead the country through the crisis. So, as such, MacDonald goes back to Labour to see the Cabinet. He'd left them about to resign, and he mm. comes back saying, oh, I've um, had to form a government with Conservatives. Tricky chat. And that's a big split in the Labour yeah. Party. And you think the way that the Liberals split and got wrecked, and the Labour get reduced to 50 MPs. And then you've got a <coughs> huge Conservative majority. Exactly, and as Harold Lasky um, wrote later, MacDonald was as much the personal choice of George V as Lord Bute was the personal choice of George III. It was a palace revolution. So you could argue Joseph has maybe gone a bit too far here and actually... Yeah, but he was taking advice. He was told that he'd be able to form a... He was told by his... He was just going with what he was told again. He was. And of course you could also argue this is a time of economic collapse, potentially. He he consults with the opposition leaders Mm. and he just does what he can to form a strong government. Yeah. He's very popular among the public. As he said, he does all these royal tours where he visits part of the kingdom that don't get to see the pageantry of London. So he goes to the mining and industrial areas, visits workers and their families. He noted um, with pride that he had an extraordinary welcome 
in uh, Keir Hardy's old constituency in South Wales. Really? 1926, we had a general strike. The Trade Union Congress tried to force the government to prevent wage reduction and worsening conditions. So 1.7 million workers went on strike in Britain. Again, lots of tension, people fearing, will this be the start of something yeah. bigger, some kind of revolution? Government tried to present the strikers, strikers as revolutionaries. Churchill formed a new paper called the British Gazette, um, because, of course, the princes were on strike, so yeah. he just formed his own paper. <laughs> and pledged to, and the Gazette pledged to support the army in any action they might find it necessary to take against the strikers. Churchill says that? Churchill said this in his paper. Wow. George V, not very happy out there, has a go at Churchill, urges Baldwin to resist provocative bills. As he says, a grave mistake to do anything which might be interpreted as confiscation or to provoke the strikers, who until now have been remarkably quiet. It's like he actually, he's like, he's got an inner socialist. (laughs) He's he's king, and he knows that he should be king, but actually... Oh, really nice church. Don't be so nasty to them. And it has a go at Churchill for that. That's great. So he refused to accept when the government tried to represent them uh, the national interest as being what the government does. Yeah. And um, he advised people who are critical of the strikers to try living on their wages before you judge them. Yeah, I mean, wise words. That's, again, the important thing, that he has that 1924 Labour government. He maybe does have a slightly better perspective mm. on some of these things than he would have done. 1935, he's been on the for 25 years, so he has a jubilee. Of course, yeah. As a jubilee. Um, he was worried about all the effort and what the expense. What is that, bronze one or something? 25? Silver. Oh, silver, yeah, silver of course. <laughs> <laughs> He's worried about all the effort and the expense. Yeah. All fuss. Probably yeah. not necessary. But the government really wants to have this sort of demonstration of national unity. We're all for it. And as such, widely celebrated um, in London, but also lots of other parts in the really poor parts of the country. Again, people coming out, mm. celebrating. It's George's fifth note. It's quite sweetly. I had no idea they felt like that about me. I'm beginning to think they really like me for myself. Oh, poor bloke. That's <laughs> a depressing thing to say. And um, perhaps most significantly are his Christmas broadcasts. Yeah. John Reith, um, the early director of the BBC, um, eventually persuaded him to make a radio broadcast to the nation at Christmas. So 1932, in a speech um, drafted for him by Rudyard Kipling, he delivers an address to the nation at Christmas time. Christmas Still happens message. today. Still happens today. A thick cloth was laid down on the table to prevent uh, the sound of him rustling the papers because he was a bit nervous. Oh, right. Uh, but he delivers this great speech. It's a huge success and um, he does it every year. Yeah. And it became a tradition. So he is directly in contact with the people for this time. Everybody in the country now pretty much gets to hear the king speak to them. So this is a definite first. We haven't had a broadcast mm. before. Uh, George V had done one early in the reign, so an imperial thing. This is, yeah, the first time yeah. we've got this to the nation nationwide and to the empire as well people oh, are abroad yeah. of course yeah. at sea can hear it as he says and perhaps the most impressive thing for subjectivity with George V is that he survives or the monarchy survives mm. rather mm. it's an unprecedented period of crisis for George V as we've seen he has to play a personal role in all this he gets dragged in so he's one of these stand back don't get involved doesn't like change and yet he's at the centre of all this stuff going on so we've got three hung parliaments 1910, 1923, 29, two coalitions, 1916, 31. He has to choose the Prime Minister in a certain way in 1916, 1923, 1924, 1931. Mm. He gets forced to take a role. Three-party politics is the only monarch that ever has to deal with genuine, full-on three-party politics. Home rule and partition in Ireland, the First World War, the Great Strike, the Great Depression. Yeah, and he's there. Social women. And, of course, the First World War leads to the fall of monarchies in Russia, 
Austria-Hungary, Germany, Greece, Spain, and the Ottoman Empire. Well, all, all of Europe. Though. Pretty much all of Europe's monarchies, apart from Britain and Scandinavia. And the French had done it a couple of years, hundred years before. They'd already so. done it. So it's really not inconceivable that had things not gone quite right, had quite George V not been yeah. a better leader, that the monarchy could have fallen. It puts the whole um, uh, Russian asylum into perspective. Yeah, that's that's what he was dealing with. That's what he thought the end game might be if it all went wrong. Yeah. So, what do we give him for subjectivity? It's really good. Hmm. The flip side to it is that actually, if you think what we define subjectivity as when we first started, it was you know, would you want to yeah. be a subject? Yeah. It's an awful time to be a subject. Yeah, that's war, very... depression, especially the Irish as well, pandemic, civil war in Ireland, almost well, literally, actually. But. I think a lot of that is so a lot of that is things that happen to almost to him during his reign mm. and he always comes out of it in my view well like yeah. the Irish thing he he's really proactive and tries to sort it out first world war it's won and he does and as i said he does it does a flawless war performance for a monarch yeah. and he as you say he comes through all of this and he and he he survives. I think mm. it's brilliant. He's, he's exactly what's needed at the time. Mm. I might not have wanted to be a subject through all of these changes, mm. but the changes are for the better. Mm. Good. It's really good. It's definitely above five. I'm going for a massive 7.5. Oh, hang on, hang on. But what, what else have we got? Royal rationing. Yeah, he's just a... I think actually what I'm doing here is giving him points for overall Rex Factorness. Mm. Um, I'm going to take it down a notch. Ooh. I'm going 6.5. Ooh. Yeah. I am going to give him 7.5. Right. Because I say, it's a very, very tough period, but unprecedented level of stuff that's thrown at him, really, and you yeah. couldn't really ask for anything more. So 6.5 for you, mm. 7.5 for me, that's 14. Longevity. He's came from 1910 to 1936, which is 25.67 years. And if we put that into the PATI calculator, that gives us a score of 8.08. Out of 20. Out of 20. It's a solid score. Dynasty, not the programme. Five surviving children. It's a good score. They had uh, six in all, but uh, sadly uh, John, who suffered from epilepsy, died just after the First World War. Um, so that's five children, so that's a score of 8.35 or... Right. Dynasty. So that's a total score of forty-five point nine three, which you know it isn't too bad. That what does that put us? So he's seventeenth. Pretty good. It's not too bad. But does he have that certain something, that star quality, that great achievement, that lasting legacy that we call Rex Factor? Now, honestly. I really can't remember what happened last time. I can't remember where we were with the scores. I got a little bit confused between him and his dad. But I, I'm tempted. I think he's exactly what was needed. Mm. He's, he's setting the mould for the present day monarchy. He doesn't want to do this stuff all the time, but he still does it. And he gives a cracking war performance. He does. And he survives. And he's good to the people. Like the, the world is a... Britain is a better place during mm. his reign. Mm. As much as he can, as he can, as he can, yeah. The argument against, of course, is that um, as it's, he's he's a bit of a dull figure. 
He doesn't have that sort mm. of star quality. Definitely doesn't have the star quality of his father, or indeed of his son, Edward VIII. We've given it to dull people for, I mean, look at Victoria. Mm. <laughs> um, and George I, didn't we? No. We didn't. Oh, George III, we did. No. No? Uh, George II? Only Victoria of the Hanoverians has got it. Really? Mm. I should know that. <laughs> um, you forgot well, too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, then... I really, I'd really like to give it to him then. I think we should have a last hurrah. Um, and he he was exactly what was needed. He was there. He was mm. there at the time. He was there at the end. He saw it through. We've still got a monarchy. Mm. We can still do Rex Factor next week, potentially yeah. because of this chap. Yeah. And, you know, he, he establishes the House of Windsor. He's very much the prototype for the modern monarch. Yeah. And no monarch, really, has had so much thrown at them. Yeah, so many crises and things that he ultimately has to get in the middle of. Well, as you say, on his first day at work, he was given this horrible ultimatum. Yeah. That's the kind of environment he was playing with. Yeah, from there on in. Yeah, I mean, but just get it. I mean, what a day at the office. Yeah. And it doesn't let up. (laughs) It really doesn't. And he doesn't really want to be dealing with this. No. He sees everyone, and he treats everyone equally. This is really... And he just wants to be in his cottage playing with stamps. Yeah, although he says that everywhere else is awful. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) <laughs> he says, I know because I've seen it. Maybe that he genuinely, genuinely thinks that. He's get, likes it. Yeah. We've seen he gives everyone a chance. Yeah. He gave a broad a chance and it just... It just fell short. And very nice. that's the way he likes it. Yes. I mean, it's not the best character trait, let's be honest. But, <laughs> um, and you think for a modern constitutional monarch, as we see it today... Yeah, that's true. How what else can they do? I'm, I'm giving it to him. I'm going to give it to him as well. So that is a yes for George V. You have joined... Your grandmother Victoria, sorry, and uh, many more beside you. You have got the ultimate accolade as a Rex Factor. How, when was the last, so other than Victoria, we haven't had one for ages. Not since William III. So William III, Victoria, now George V. That's great. Well done, George V. Yeah, and and to be honest, uh, V looks great. If you're going to be up there in the Rex Factor pantheon, George V. It looks well carved into mm. stone. So yeah. there he is. He's carved into the Rex Factor immortal plinth. So George V has got the Rex Factor. The conspiracy theorists can start here because Ali has conveniently forgotten that two weeks ago he gave the opposite response to George V. Did I seriously? You did. You said no two weeks ago. I said yes, but you said no. Did I rearrange the episode in such a way that You've it got such your power thing? here, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> you, we haven't discussed you, uh, the decision since then. No, we just other discussed than the a, episode. Other than a text where it was all a bit doom and gloom saying we're going to have to do this again. Yeah. That's been the last mention. Last word. Wow, so. okay, well I'm shocked. I'm I'm so such a turncoat. <laughs> <laughs> but George V has got the Rex Factor unless we lose the episode again, in which case we'll probably just by default denying <laughs> the opportunity. <laughs> Next time we will do his son, Edward VIII, who is a very different kettle of fish altogether. Hmm. The Abdication Crisis, Wallace Simpson, etc. So we will see you next time. Cheerio. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.